All right, our text this morning. So please do open up a copy of God's Word, either the Pew Bible or your own Bible. If it's the Pew Bible, it is page 263, and it's 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I've been enjoying learning bits and pieces of uh, New England history. Uh, here's one for you. I mentioned one uh, last week about uh, uh, the lighthouse that's uh, out in the middle of the water off, uh, off the coast of Situate. Um, here's a story. Uh, in September of 1907, uh, in Canaan, New Hampshire, um, which is not far from the Vermont border, a heavily loaded passenger train was heading south. And uh, the, the train had been up in, uh, in Canada, in Quebec, and was at a, a fair called the, the, Sher, uh, the Sherbrooke Fair. It, doesn't, it no longer exists, but evidently it was a popular fair. They're heading south. Of course, a lot of people from Boston uh, were, were heading home. All's well. And, uh, and fine, until on that September fall day, uh, lo and behold, there's a northbound train on the same track. It's the Boston and Maine freight train. And, uh, and it's, it, the conditions aren't perfect because it's kind of foggy. And so uh, the, the visibility is low. And as the two crews of the north and southbound trains are heading toward each other, there's one's going 25 miles an hour and another's going 35 miles an hour. But... Uh, it's only at about 400 feet apart from one another that they realize there's nothing they can do. And, uh, and, and they're just powerless to prevent this collision from happening. And so the crew uh, on both of the engines uh, jump and, uh, and they survive. But unfortunately, 25 people died and about the same number of people were injured. In fact, to this very day, it is the most uh, deadly. It is the deadliest uh, train crash accident in New Hampshire history. They say that the cause when they investigated the accident was kind of still, it, it's still a mystery, but it was due to a mistake in the train dispatch, uh, his orders and their communication. Now, if you had had the right information, but at the wrong time, you would have been able to anticipate, oh, what has happened? But there's nothing you can do at that moment, almost as if you could have had also, I, I just was imagining like, a, you know, an aerial view, or even if you were on one of the, the, the mountains, maybe not too far away at the Vermont border, being able to look down and see this happen, it would have been like in slow motion. Uh, you know, that, that, that much distance in, in hearing and seeing and hearing and seeing, and here it is, it's all unfolding in slow motion before you, and it is a tragedy. Why do I mention that? Except to say, last week, as we opened up God's word, we all were witnesses, weren't we, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 to a terrible Train wreck. Long before trains were around, of course, it's a figure of speech. Our narrator wanted us to watch what unfolded in the life of King David, his family, and the nation of Israel in slow motion to understand some of the, I, I don't know how to say it, the anatomy, the trajectory of, of sin, something that we all uh, struggle with and share in common. Who was behind that slow-moving train heading toward destruction. Who was in charge of the main engine? Well, it was King David, sadly enough. Good King David. David, who was the one who brought peace to the people in the nation of, of Israel, God's people. It's David. David, good King David, who uh, produced the greatest songbook known in the history of the world, the Psalter. Why? Because he confesses there that he loves the law of God and that he loves God. He's a man after God's own heart. The train wreck didn't occur because he lacked the plans. 
or didn't, didn't know the details. He had God's word in his hand, his law. But when all the kings we read last week at the beginning of chapter 11 were off at war, uh, as, as typically would be the case, uh, he was not. All, all of his men and armies uh, were away, but he is back home getting some rest and relaxation. We don't know what motivated him to do that, but we know that something's not right in his heart. And we know there's some measure of, of presumption and uh, entitlement. He's walking around on the roof of his house, of the palace, and he's looking down over. And he already has things going on in his life that aren't right with respect to women. And he, he loves women, but that's not what's operating right now. It's not love. It is lust. When he looks and behold, there's a woman who's beautiful, who's bathing, and it's not his wife. It's someone else's wife. It's someone else's daughter, the text tells us in chapter 11. And what does he do? He acts upon those desires. He does not turn away. It's not the first look. It's the second look that starts to kill him and undo this whole, and that, that accelerates the train in that bad Miserable trajectory. So, you know, you just you, you think about many of the angles surrounding this. And we did explore it last week and we you could go back and look. But we know that there he, he, he summoned for her. He stole. He took. He violated. He's 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 and all we hear from Bathsheba is three words after it all transpires. I am pregnant. David begins to go into, um, I probably shouldn't say that, uh, he, he's covering himself. He goes into deceit, probably because David does not want this, clearly because David doesn't want this brought into the light of truth. So he develops a plan A, and uh, that does not work, and he begins a plan B, that that might be the ticket to help uh, cover this up and smooth it all out. Why? Because even in the midst of David breaking multiple commandments... Multiple of the Ten Commandments, he's not about to break the Eleventh Commandment. What's the Eleventh Commandment? Thou shalt not get caught. Thank you, that's right. <laughs> that, that's, that's a joke. Um, David does not want to be caught. David was, and, and to carry it even further, when plan B doesn't work, he wants uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed. He sends him to the front lines and purposefully strategizes for the troops to draw back so he would die. He takes Bathsheba for his own, brings her into his home. And even though he already had multiple wives and concubines, and that's, I know, messed up. And we talked about that last fall a, a, a few times. So go back and listen or ask me more questions. I get it. Then we move along to the end of the chapter. But David is just blind. At this point, David is blind to the train wreck of collision and disaster that will involve even more lives and even more division and more suffering even for his own family and people. It's, it's almost like a, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's like an ugly uh, you know, mob scene. You know? It's like there's a, there's a homicide. It's messy. But only a handful of people know. And they're going to try to clean up the mess. And, uh, and, and come out with, you know. It's only a few people. The, the accomplices uh, know about it. Bathsheba knows about it. But as far as David can tell, he knows it, it's all good. At this point, we're entering into chapter 12. It's about a year later. How do we know it's a year later? Well, they have a child. And, uh, and I did some research. In, in the ancient Near East, uh, women, uh, from conception to birth, it was nine months. <laughs> that was another joke. And that's the last joke I have today. Why? 
Because the truth is, there's so much to be angry about in this text. Moreover, there's a great deal to grieve about in this account. For many of you, and I want to say this in advance, and I probably should have said it last week when we read the original account of all this unfolding in chapter 11, that I know there's people here that, and I lament the fact that some of you have had to experience some of the pain of these sins and and the consequences of these selfish choices, consequences like divorce and division, even death, because of other people's sinful, selfish choices, not your own. And to the degree that that might rise pain and and, and noise for you, I'd love to talk and pray with you. So there's no jokes, and I don't even have really any illustrations this morning. I, I don't need them. Because the story itself is very illustrative. It is engaging. Remember, David thinks, now a year later, whew, okay, I covered my tracks. No one else knows about what really went on, so I've covered myself. But has he? He has a friend. It's God's appointed mouthpiece, the prophet Nathan. And he enters in stage left. So let's read God's word together and stand. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Hear this. This is the word of God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it. He tied it. He brought brought it up and he grew it. And it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his own morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, his ewe, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger. This is in response to hearing that story. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. As if it were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, 
You have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God and on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay at night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while, he, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How? How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But David saw that his servants were whispering together. David understood, what the, understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he had asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I go fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. We'll pause there. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help though. Father, We thank you this morning for your word and what we lack in understanding. Would you please give us what we lack in our spirit? Spiritually, would you prompt us to repentance and faith? Please provide. Wake us up physically, spiritually. Stir us. Make us attentive to your word and to your amazing grace. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. Sorry, I just realized that I don't have my mic on, but maybe I was loud enough. Joey, am I okay? Yes. Thank you, buddy. We, we know that God uh, was absent in chapter 11. But by and large, uh, we, we don't hear any mention. It's not that God's not in control. It's not that God's uh, truly absent. But there's very little mention except for the very last verse of the previous chapter before we get into this. And it says that the Lord God was displeased with David and what he had done. David in chapter 11, or at least so it seems, is calling all the shots. He's making uh, the decisions. But this chapter doesn't begin with the absence of of duty and, and the silence concerning God. It begins with the Lord. Let's just read that opening verse again. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That 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 very phrase, that very indicated, that is an entire sermon. In and of itself. Much could be said. There's so much to uncover and grapple with and understand and apply. I think in this text, there are many angles. There are many ways that we could easily. This is a plug for community groups to have conversation, to reflect together, to try to to try to pull out 
understanding and meaning and application for our lives, to pray over these things as they impact our own lives. Here's the way that I see the story progressing as the author, the narrator, has us see it. It's unfolding. It's a story that is about revealing sin and the suffering that comes because of sin. But it's also a word of hope for sinners. When God, of all people, with all things, comes and invades with his grace. He said, Troy, this doesn't sound like a story of grace, but I, I, think, it, I think it is. And I, I'd like to try to encourage us to see that. And there's three movements here. There's, there's confrontation, there's contrition, and then there's chastisement. Co- confrontation, I mean, you think about a tough job. You think you have a bad, difficult job? <clears throat> well, Nathan has to go to the ultimate king and judge and rebuke him. Rebuke him. And he does it. He does it courageously and he does it even more importantly, skillfully, faithfully. Skillfully, he comes and decides to approach him with a parable. Doesn't start that way. But the way that he tells it, you're, you're so almost surprised, right? You're almost like, like, David, could you not? It doesn't this sound like to you once upon a time, right? David, like, you know, there's got to be something that, that, you, that, that, you know, dialed you into this. Even in the Hebrew, the word for daughter there is, is, is bat and it's Bathsheba. It's, it's son of someone's daughter. And just the pieces there, you're like, David, this is, this is coming uh, to you. He doesn't see it. And he gets, he gets provoked. There's, a, there's an indignation. Uh, 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 you could argue, uh, obviously, a righteous indignation for what this man, this, this wealthy man has stolen. This tragic parable, we see a wealthy man who's so stingy he wants to steal from his, his neighbor who has far left just, less just to show hospitality. Little does David know that in response to that, when he's, verse 5, quickly kindled with anger, little does he know that he's actually calling down judgment and condemnation on himself. Think about that. Think about that. Old Testament scholar uh, Joyce Baldwin puts it so well. She writes, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. And, and, and the blow that he brings, it's not Nathan's. It, it's, it's the Lord God. The sword also reveals the depth of this offense. It, it didn't begin with a physical, um, it, it, didn't, it didn't, all of what transpired and unfolded, it didn't just begin with uh, a physical longing and lust. It, it actually began before that. And it didn't end there either. It didn't begin with uh, physical relational adultery with a woman, and it didn't end there. We know that. What was going on behind all of this was a spiritual adultery. David belonged to the Lord, the covenant-making God. You are my people. You belong to me. I am yours, and you are mine. And David had disregarded this. He was not going to be faithful. His infidelity is in relationship uh, in, in, and in connection with God. A God who has been faithful. A God who has been generous. Verse 7. What does he remind him through the, the mouthpiece of Nathan? I delivered you. I, I'm the one who rescued you in the past. I've given you so much. And I, not only that, <laughs> I would have given you even more. 
God has been, the Lord God of Abraham has been generous to David. As Dale Ralph Davis, my, my favorite Old Testament commentator, writes, treachery, which really, I mean, it's the spiritual adultery, right? The, the treachery here appears even more hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. And that, that's, that's how it is. Like, the, like it's, it's not like you, you, you realize God was, was stingy and, and David felt like he was desperate. He, he wasn't. He wasn't needy. He wasn't for want at all. God had not called him to something that was impossible. God had not been withholding of him. Nevertheless, he would have still had to submit to the Lord. But even more so, the, the generosity and the fidelity that he betrays in treachery and spiritual adultery is, is terrible. And this encounter shows that grace is not only amazing, but grace actually, true grace, transforms people. There's, there was relief on David's part, not rage, when he realized you're the man. When the, when the mirror got raised up, does he rage? Does he criticize the process? And you've been so unkind to me. How dare you do this to me? Get out of my presence or deny or do this. or uh, No, no, he's, he's relieved. How do we know that? How do we know that that's, how is that even possible? Right? You contemplate this. Contemplate how this king who has all this power, he's already knocked someone, up, someone off. Who, who cares? Just, just, just take out another person. Nathan, where did you learn that? Okay, now you're dead and that guy is too. No. Because God, how do we know? Because God in his grace was already work at work in a peculiar and unique personal way. Prior to all this, the weight of this is now descending, has already been on David's conscience. Unlike other leaders, uh, not, not only Gentiles, but also uh, King Saul that preceded him, his father-in-law, David is restless and it's, it's, it's been leading him, and it is leading him back to the very God he trusted. And we get a window into this, right? What was going on soon after uh, David's cover-up and Uriah's death? Well, we actually have a window into this. It's, again, one of the reasons I love the Psalter. Psalm, Psalm 32 writes this. David says, when I kept silent, and think about this. Think about your story. Think about your secrets. Think about your, the places where there's guilt and shame in your life. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, Lord, was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David was actually in, and we just saw the whole of that story, but we're at the beginning. He's in the grip of God's grace already. Don't be fooled, my friends. Time, <laughs> we all would love to have our conscience cleansed, okay? If it's alive, if it's not dead or hardened or, or, or so, you know, so suppressed, if we have a conscience and, and it's bothering you, time won't heal it. Time won't cleanse it. And I, I, I've said this to you before. I've said this to my family. I've said this to myself many times. It's never too late to do the right thing. To have a conscience that's sensitive to the ways and wisdom of God. Dale Ralph Davis again. If God determines to bring you to repentance, what chance have you against grace like that? 
God's grace is far more, far more than just amazing. God's grace is smart. And it shows up here, obviously, through Nathan. But it already shown up. The, the work of God in, in David's soul already. So that's part of the whole confrontation, right? Well, let's move on, right? Let's move on to this contrition. Yes, because God had already been working, convicting and compelling David uh, to this point of surrender and humility. He was putting up a front. He was fighting it, but it wouldn't last. David brought the verdict upon himself and he despised the word of the Lord. Verse five. Look at our text again. <clears throat> Uh, what does he say? Then David was, his anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man, what he has done, that he deserves to die and pay retribution. Fourfold, fourfold retribution for this guy. He's calling down judgment, like I said, upon himself. It sounds like, it sounds like Romans, though. It sounds like later in Romans 6, 23, when the apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And I, I just want to speak to this for a second. I don't know about you, but I think there are times when we read about some of the, the, the stories in Scripture of these scandals and failures and how the mighty have fallen. And we think to ourselves, that's just horrible. I, I, you know, David, how dare you? I, 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 would, I would never do something like that. P- please. P- please. Please be careful. You may be close to being deceived and, and you might be forgetting how much mercy God has shown you. Even the mercy that God has employed to, to preserve us. You know, you think about that, how he's restrained us at times from, from doing the very thing we wanted to do. I mean, David could have said, well, I didn't want to do all that cover-up stuff. Yeah, but you did, and you did. And, and God at times has even restrained us. He has caught us in our sin. My mom probably used to pray for that. That was, that, was, that, was, that was bad for me, but ultimately good. David brings this condemnation on himself. Nathan brought God's gracious word to bear, though. God's not going to have you wiped away, Nathan says in verse 13 here. David was broken. Let's read it again, verse 13, look at it. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. That's, that is the mercy of God. And David was broken and David was contrite. David wasn't just like what we had said, you know, in the, the affirmation of faith, that he was just, you know, worldly sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for the consequences. I'm sorry I'm, I'm embarrassed. I feel really bad because, you know, I, 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 I have to grieve and suffer. no. He, he says, he understands. How do we know that's true? Because, you know, you've all met people. Okay, okay, okay. I messed up. I messed up. I messed up. Royally, I messed up. Fine. Can we please move on? We've all been there. We've all said it. We've all heard it. How do we know that's not what David's doing here? I feel bad. Can you just let up? Why do you have to keep bringing this up? No, David. David, we know because of God's self-revelation in this very context, at the the very moment as these events were transpiring, again, inspired of the Holy Spirit, he writes this, the great Psalm 51. There's an intro to it, Psalm 51. In fact, if you want to turn there, please do. Uh, Psalm's right in the middle of the Bible, and it's right in the middle of that Psalm, so it might be, you know, right smack dab. 
Turn there. I'll start reading the opening. The opening of Psalm 51 is to the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan, it sets it in its context in historical events, when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. What does David say there? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Look down at verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, I've been a sinner all my life. And the gravity of it, he's feeling. Behold, verse six, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones, remember the bones in his conscience back in Psalm 32 that were, were, were just agonizing as his troubled conscience was grappling with this. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create, a, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will we turn to you. What about you? Because David's teaching us, folks. David is, is, God's teaching us. God's pursuing us so often. And in Romans, we see in Romans 2, just in case you thought that when God brings judgment and when, and when God uh, brings down these consequences that he doesn't care, uh, Paul writes so clearly in Romans 2, do not presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance, don't presume upon his riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. David wasn't wiped out. He was shown mercy here. So that he would do exactly what David did. Be contrite and repent. What about you? David's teaching us. What about me? When you're confronted with your sin, your offenses, your failures. I'm not talking about failures in the, in the classroom or on the field or uh, your chores. Well, maybe. Um, I'm not talking about something deeper. The things that we, we were deeply, we would, we would love for no one to find out about perhaps. What do you do? Do we hide? Do we cover? Do we justify that sin? Do we make excuses? Do we deflect? Do we blame shift? Or do we repent? That repentance, by the way, is the only remedy for sin. Repentance is to turn, to have a change of of mind and direction and heart. I said it last week. It's not just a repentance away from something which is sin and and selfishness, but towards something, which is the love of God, not the love of self. The question is not, do we sin? Do you sin? The question is not that. The question is, what happens after you sin? And let me tell you, the answer to that question is a a life or death matter. There's no other way for me to put that. It is a life or death matter what you do with your guilt, shame, and sin. Come to Jesus, our Savior, the only Savior, 
The Savior of sinners, come to Jesus with honesty, with humility, with surrender, with, with yielding, calling out for, for help. Abandon all the strategies that you have in your back pocket to save face. I, I, I'm familiar with them. I'm not saying yours. I'm talking about mine. I, I, the, the most cre- creativity that we can come up with in our whole life is when we're making excuses on the spot. I know that full well. Take up the very words. Here's a, here's a point of application. When you sense the heaviness of your sin and your conscience, or when you're confronted by someone else, go to the Lord, take up Psalm 51 and read it. I know because I have, and it has brought healing to my soul to pray those words of Psalm 51, King David, as he did here, back to the Lord God. Look up, look at this passage, uh, that portion, and then look up to a savior, the greater son of King David, who is the victor, the royal king, who loves you and died for you. All right, moving on. I know I'm skipping over. There's, there's other aspects I can't really uh, unpack here. We've got a confrontation. Uh, we, we've got contrition. Uh, but then we see this, this chastisement. That sounds like an old school word, but I, I need another C. So uh, here, here, here we are, okay. Uh, but but mere, mere, merely the word, you said, well, you could have said consequences, and that would have been somewhat accurate, but it's not just consequences. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because, and you know what it's like, people love to, 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 to look at the consequences of other people's sin, not our own. Uh, we love to have ourselves be shown mercy and other people shown justice. And, and sometimes it's not all good and sweet, if you know what I mean. And by the way, not all suffering that people are, are, are experiencing, I said this, I, I think, recently, not all suffering that people experience is a result, directly or indirectly, of God's displeasure. Sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a broken, fallen world, and other people do mean unjust things. But God is still in control. We still can learn and grow, and we do, in our dependence upon the goodness of God. But here... Indeed, it is a direct chastisement brought by God. It's not a coincidence. It's not just a mere natural outworking of, 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 uh, of circumstance. Nor is it, and this is important, let me just say it again. It's a direct chastisement of God, not a coincidence, nor merely a condemnation. We already read of the division that's coming, Nathan had predicted it, the turmoil that's going to come upon David's own royal family in verse 10. In fact, the retribution of God will come by way of his enemies. Did you catch that in verse 11? He says, hey, listen, what you did in, in, in the darkness, in the secret, I'm going to bring over here and it is going to be a public spectacle because your own neighbor is going to take your wife. Remember, David, the fourfold Retribution, the, the, the repayment for these things, it's coming to you. And then the most profound aspect of that suffering is the loss of a child. Verse 15, the child becomes sick. David does all that David knows how to do at this point. I'm not saying it's insincere. I, I think his cries were genuine, but God allowed this suffering to come to pass. Suffering and consequence, he knew, David himself knew that he had caused and then building up, right, to, to verse 18, we, we see that before the child dies, David is despairing. 
Knowing that it's already been predicted and he's trying to persuade God, not this way, not this route. Please show mercy. He's almost suicidal, right? He's despairing of life itself. The servants around him are concerned that he's suicidal. It's so, it's so severe. The grief and anguish in his soul. And then what happens? As, the, as, as things unfold, they get, they, I'm sure they were just dizzy and, and dumbfounded. After the child dies, verse 18, David receives the Lord's will by faith. And everyone's shocked because he's, he's, he's ready to, to, to pick up, to, to, to go, get cleaned up, nourish himself, and, and, and head out to worship God. He heads out not with bitterness, but with trust in his heart to worship in submission to God. In verse 20, he went to the house of the Lord, we read. He went to the house of the Lord to worship. He didn't say, well, God didn't answer my prayers with a big yes, so I'm going to say no to him. I'm leaving the church. I'm leaving the Lord. I'm, I don't believe in his goodness anymore. D- David received it as the will. Folks, friends, the road to repentance is, is rocky. It's, it's, it's rocky at various turns. And, and if we walk by faith, we will experience, though, refreshment and life at the end of it, or even along the way. And yes, it is painful. But to, to the silly bumper sticker slogan, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Look, folks, pain and suffering over sin is not paying for your sin. It's not even possible. I've seen people, not just people who are awaiting trial or uh, people who are, but but but, or people who you know been caught and exposed in, in some scandal, everyday people, who have. Are now living with the shrapnel of a bomb that they know and others do too, that they themselves set off. They try to pick up the pieces, but many times people can't overlook it. They they just get kicked and kicked, and it's rubbed in their face. Their failures, even this very week. This very week, I had two Christian brothers that I got a chance to talk to. Neither of them, one doesn't even live here, neither of which are part of our church, but both of them uh, needed help. And I just feel like it was in God's providence that I was studying this very text. They're both men who cheated on their wives. And they've repented and they have, uh, they have, they've, they've lost everything. Just about, certainly relationally, and a lot of hope. I just wanted to encourage them from this story, from this account. And I want to say to you, and this is what I think is, maybe this is the most clear takeaway from this text that we learn. Just because you have or you're still living in the consequences of your sin, even after you have repented, Please know that does not mean, it does not mean that you or someone else in Christ is not forgiven. This is illustrated here. I think we see that. So back to our old school word chastisement. A.W. Pink, a trusted theologian and writer of a previous century said, it's of first importance that we learn to draw a sharp distinction between God's punishment and God's chastisement. 
important for maintaining the honor and glory of God and for the peace of mind of the Christian. So I'm highlighting this. I'm highlighting his distinction between divine chastisement and divine punishment for the peace of mind for Christians. Okay, the distinction Pink writes is very simple, yet it's often lost sight of by God's people because he says this. He says God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins. For God has already punished them at the cross. The Lord Jesus, our blessed substitute, suffered the full penalty of all our guilt. Hence it is written, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. Quoting 1 John 1.7. He goes on to highlight, Pink does, a helpful way that you can think about this. When you were not a child of God, at the end, and ultimately God is only your judge. But when you surrender to Christ and you're united to him by faith, he becomes a heavenly. Well, you're adopted. So what does that make him? What does that make you? He is a father and you are daughters and sons in Christ. Praise be to God. Yes, he's a father who administers discipline. Not punishment, but yes, at times, loving discipline. Why? That he might teach us, that he might grow us, that he might humble us, that he might press us into a deeper reliance upon him. Do not, do not assume that it is a lack of love. I said it last week, it's, it's, dirt, it's, it's certainly worth repeating. God does not sweep David away with condemnation so that he could honor David. He did that. To show his mercy, his compassion, and his immense ability to change people, to change hearts, to change minds, to change the trajectory. God's forgiveness here, my friends, is both marvelous, beautiful to behold, and yet his grace here, you cannot deny it, and I'm almost done. But hear me on this one. His grace here is marvelous, but it is costly, deeply costly. Why? Because indeed, the son of David... Right here in the story. Now, I'm not trying to force something into the text. Into this account, but we know for certain that there is somewhat of a pattern and a paradox here, even more so as we move into the New Testament. The paradox for us is that our own forgiveness is both free. And costly because the son of David has been Our substitute. In the story, that's what happens. You shall not die, but the child will. It is a later son of David that for us, clearly, no doubt, is our substitute. That's our hope. Friends, our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in other people. Our hope is not even in the prophets because even then... The best of men are men at best, save one, Jesus. Jesus who endured every possible temptation, every trial that we could imagine, and yet was faithful all the way, all the way to the end. He is a good and great king. He's a living king. He's he's a living king, prophet, priest, and king. And as a priest, Hebrews tells us this, and I'll close with these two verses. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Let's seek him. Lord God Almighty, uh, we do seek your face. Uh, We seek you and ask your Holy Spirit this day, this week, and all that lies ahead in our pathway that you might help us Prompt us to fix our eyes on, on Jesus, not turn in on ourselves and not look down on other people that are struggling with sin and its consequences, but with Jesus. Help us in our time of need. I know, you know, there's different needs here in our church family and this room. Lord, there's different struggles. There's different questions. There's, there's grief. There's cries for mercy. Would you hear us? On account of Jesus, would you teach us, Father, more of what it means to fear you, to grow in humility, uh, even this fall as we try to unpack the wisdom that you have for us in your word. Be merciful, Lord. Please cultivate. Cultivate in our community and in our own country a hunger for the hearing and the reading of your word. I pray you'd raise up more churches, more laborers. I pray with great thanks for Emmanuel Baptist in Weymouth, for First Baptist in Situate. I pray for... Uh, their pastors, for for David and for Stephen. Would you bless them and the leadership of their churches as they seek to teach and preach the gospel? Lord, there are many people who live and struggle in fear. They need comfort. They grieve. They grieve great loss of of life and of hope, of, of relationships. Comfort, strengthen, Lord. And for people who are here today feeling the, the weight of their sin I, I, or shame, I pray that or the, the consequences that people remind them of, would you please meet them in their suffering? Whether it's in a miserable marriage or family or bitterness or even our brothers and sisters that we can think of and know of that are in prison feeling trapped. Remind them, remind us, Remind them of your love. Remind us that they are still sufferers. Through Christ, we ask all of this. And in his name, as he taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 